0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Aaron Hockwimmer in Auckland, New Zealand. The History of England from the Accession of James II by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Book 1, Chapter 3, Part 13. The war between wit and Puritanism soon became a war between wit and morality. The hostility excited by a grotesque caricature of virtue did not spare virtue herself. Whatever the canting Roundhead had regarded with reverence was insulted. Whatever he had prescribed was favoured. Because he had been scrupulous about trifles, all scruples were treated with derision. Because he had covered his failings with the mask of devotion, men were encouraged to obtrude with cynic impudence all their most scandalous vices on the public eye. Because he had punished illicit love with barbarous severity, virgin purity, and conjugal fidelity, were made a jest. To that sanctimonious jargon which was his shibboleth was opposed another jargon not less absurd and much more odious as he never opened his mouth except in scriptural phrase, the new breed of wits and fine gentlemen never opened their mouths without uttering ribaldry of which a porter would now be ashamed, and without calling on their maker to curse them, sink them, confound them, blast them, and damn them. It is not strange, therefore, that our polite literature, when it revived with the revival of the old civil and ecclesiastical polity, should have been profoundly immoral. A few eminent men, who belonged to an earlier and better age, were exempt from the general contagion. The verse of Waller still breathed the sentiments which had animated a more chivalrous generation. Cowley, distinguished as a loyalist, and as a man of letters, raised his voice courageously against the immorality which disgraced both letters and loyalty. A mightier poet, Tried at once by pain, danger, poverty, obloquy, and blindness, meditates undisturbed by the obscene tumult which raged all around him a song so sublime and so holy that it would not have misbecome the lips of those ethereal virtues whom he saw, with that inner eye which no calamity could darken, flinging down on the jasper pavement their crowns of amaranth and gold. The vigorous and fertile genius of Butler, if it did not altogether escape the prevailing infection, took the disease in a mild form. But these were men whose minds had been trained in a world which had passed away. They gave place in no long time to a younger generation of wits, and of that generation, from dryden down to Durfee, the common characteristic was hard-hearted, shameless, swaggering licentiousness, at once inelegant and inhuman. The influence of these writers was doubtless noxious, yet less noxious than it would have been had they been less depraved. The poison which they administered was so strong that it was, in no long time, rejected with nausea. None of them understood the dangerous art of associating images of unlawful pleasure with all that is endearing and ennobling. None of them was aware that a certain decorum is essential, even to voluptuousness, that drapery may be more alluring than exposure, and that the imagination may be far more powerfully moved by delicate hints which impel it to exert itself, than by gross descriptions which it takes in passively. The spirit of the anti-Puritan reaction pervades almost the whole polite literature of the reign of Charles II but the very quintessence of that spirit will be found in the comic drama. The playhouses, shut by the meddling fanatic in the day of his power, were again crowded. To their old attractions, new and more powerful attractions had been added. Scenery, dresses, and decorations, such as would now have been thought mean or absurd, but such as would have been esteemed incredibly magnificent by those who, early in the seventeenth century, sat on the filthy benches of the hope, or under the thatched roof of the rose, dazzled the eyes of the multitude. The fascination of sex was called in to aid the fascination of art, and the young spectators saw, with emotions unknown to the contemporaries of Shakespeare and Johnson, tender and sprightly heroines personated by a lovely women. From the day on which the theatres were reopened, they became seminaries of vice, and the evil propagated itself. The profligacy of the representations soon drove away sober people, the frivolous and dissolute who remained required every year stronger and stronger stimulants. Thus the artists corrupted the spectators and the spectators the artists, till the turpitude of the drama became such as must astonish all who are not aware that extreme relaxation is the natural effect of extreme restraint, and that an age of hypocrisy is, in the regular course of things, followed by all age of impudence. Nothing is more characteristic of the times than the care with which the poets contrived to put all their loosest verses into the mouths of women. The compositions in which the greatest license were taken were the epilogues. They were almost always recited by favourite actresses and nothing charmed the depraved audience so much as to hear lines grossly indecent repeated by a beautiful girl who was supposed to have not yet lost her innocence. Our theatre was indebted in that age for many plots and characters to Spain, to France, and to the old English masters. But whatever our dramatists touch, they tainted. In their imitations, the houses of Calderon's stately and high-spirited Castilian gentlemen became styes of vice, Shakespeare's viola a procuris, Moliere's Misanthrope a revisher, Moliere's agnes an adulteress. Nothing could be so pure or so heroic, but that it became foul and ignoble by transfusion through those foul and ignoble minds. Such was the state of the drama, and the drama was the department of polite literature in which a poet had the best chance of obtaining a subsistence by his pen. The sale of books was so small that a man of the greatest name could hardly expect more than a pittance for the copyright of the best performance. There cannot be a stronger instance than the fate of Dryden's last production, The Fables. That volume was published when he was universally admitted to be the chief of living English poets. It contains about 12,000 lines, the versification is admirable, the narratives and descriptions full of life. To this day Palamon and Arcite, Simon and Iphigenia, Theodore and Honoria are the delight both of critics and of schoolboys. The collection includes Alexander's feast, the noblest ode in our language. For the copyright Dryden received two hundred and fifty pounds, less than in our days has sometimes been paid for two articles in a review. Nor does the bargain seem to have been a hard one, for the book went off slowly, and the second edition was not required till the author had been ten years in his grave. By writing for the theatre, it was possible to earn a much larger sum with much less trouble. Southern made 700 pounds by one play, was raised from beggary to temporary affluence by the success of his don carlos shadwell cleared a hundred and thirty pounds by a single representation of the squire of alsatia the consequence was that every man who had to live by his wit wrote plays whether he had any internal vocation to write plays or not it was thus with dryden satirist he has rivaled juvenal as a didactic poet he perhaps might with Kira meditation, have rivaled Lucretius. Of lyric poets he is, if not the most sublime, the most brilliant and spirit-stirring. But nature, profuse to him of many rare gifts, had withheld from him the dramatic faculty. Nevertheless, all the energies of his best years were wasted on dramatic composition. He had too much judgment not to be aware that in the power of exhibiting character by means of dialogue, he was deficient. that deficiency he did his best to conceal sometimes by surprising and amusing incidents, sometimes by stately declamation, sometimes by harmonious numbers, sometimes by ribaldry, but too well suited to the taste of a profane and licentious pit. Yet he never obtained any theatrical success equal to that which rewarded the exertions of some men far inferior to him in general powers. He thought himself fortunate if he cleared a hundred guineas by a play, a scanty remuneration, yet apparently larger than he could have earned in any other way by the same quantity of labour. The recompense which the wits of that age could obtain from the public was so small that they were under the necessity of eking out their incomes by levying contributions on the great. Every rich and good-natured lord was pestered by authors with a mendicancy so importune and a flattery so subject as may in our time seem incredible. The patron to whom a work was inscribed was expected to reward the writer with a purse of gold. The fee paid for the dedication of a book was often much larger than the sum which any publisher would give for the copyright. Books were therefore frequently printed merely that they might be dedicated. This traffic in praise produced the effect which might have been expected. Adulation pushed to the verge, sometimes of nonsense and sometimes of impiety, was not thought to disgrace a poet. Independence, veracity, self-respect were things not required by the world from him. In truth, he was in morals something between a panda and a beggar. End of Part 13